Welcome to a new episode of Biology Lessons on Air. My name is Veronica Athanasiu, and today we will be talking about the origin of cells. It is section 1.5 in the book by Damon McGonigal, Tosto, and Ward. This is a very interesting topic. Rather than focusing on ultrastructures or chemical reactions, we are going to focus really on theory and evidence. The essential idea is that there is an unbroken chain of life from the first cells on earth to all cells in organisms alive today. The current cell theory has three main parts. One, all organisms are composed of one or more cells. Two, cells are the smallest units of life. Three, all cells come from other pre-existing cells. However, we have to accept that the first cells must have arisen from non-living material. We do have evidence that cells can only be formed by division of pre-existing cells. So where did these first cells come from is a very interesting question that still doesn't have an answer. What is a theory? Theory is a well-substantiated explanation of a natural phenomenon that incorporates tested hypotheses and laws. So the cell theory is an extremely valuable endpoint that represents understandings that have developed from extensive observation, experimentation, and logical inferences. It has been modified during the years since it was first proposed in the 1800s. It will continue to be modified as cellular research progresses in the future. Now, what are some problems and exceptions to the cell theory? We already mentioned some in previous uh, sections, but we will be looking in more detail at them. One missing component of cell theory is how the first cell arose. There is no evidence that new cells arise from non-living material today. However, the first cells must have been formed in this way. At this point, we do have to travel back in time and consider the conditions on Earth billions of years ago. The temperature, the oxygen concentration or lack of it thereof, the changes on the conditions themselves, pressure, temperature, there were more extreme values. Uh, the changes happened over a shorter period of time. The conditions were very different. In the 1950s, Miller and Urey of the University of California were able to synthesize over 20 amino acids from inorganic compounds using a unique experimental apparatus in which they placed a mixture of gases they assumed were present in the primitive atmosphere like methane and ammonia together with water, um, a condenser and heated water that resembled uh, seawater. They left it to rest for a week and they found traces of these organic compounds. 
So it is interesting to understand that if you have evidence that organic compounds can be formed from simple inorganic compounds, this could have happened in the primitive times. They were able to synthesize amino acids. Likewise, there were other polymers that can be self-assembled in places where there is high energy like volcanic rifts or deep sea vents where thermal energy released from the cracks may be enough to polymerize small organic molecules. Once you have lipids, they are able to form bilayer, micelles, or liposomes. So it is not difficult to imagine how the first cell membranes could have been formed. You have the amino acids that make the proteins, you have the lipids that form the bilayer, there you have a primitive prokaryote organism. Prokaryotes were indeed the first organisms to emerge out of the primordial earth. They gained specialized methods of metabolism, meaning that they could use the basic inorganic molecules present in the air, in the water, and they could, for example, fix nitrogen from the air, which means taking nitrogen gas, N2, and incorporating hydrogen ions, and then incorporating that into proteins. Some of them were adapted to lack of oxygen, so they were able to produce ATP under anaerobic conditions. Some of them then thrived better in aerobic conditions as the photosynthetic prokaryotes emerged. Now, how could this have happened? Well, the magic chlorophyll molecule had to be synthesized. So when this happened, this molecule was able to convert light energy into organic compounds, of course, plus using CO2 and water. Now imagine then when the photosynthesizing primitive organisms were then producing oxygen as a byproduct of their metabolism, what happened to the atmosphere? The level of oxygen increased. Those who were adapted for aerobic respiration then could thrive. So as the polymers were being formed and assembled and the cell membranes and all the specialized structures and the metabolic pathways that we will be studying in more detail later on, were being formed, the conditions around them were changing. Eventually, the ozone layer was formed and the conditions on Earth remained constant. The principle that cells only come from pre-existing cells is verified by Pasteur's experiments. He found evidence that spontaneous generation of cells and organisms doesn't now occur on Earth. As evidence for the cell theory, you have to know Pasteur's work. 
It is described in detail on page 38 of your book, in which they describe how he took nutrient broth, which just means a mixture of water and nutrients that are basic for the growth of microorganisms. He used uh, sterile conditions in order to verify that there were no organisms in the broth and he left them under three different conditions and then he cultured them on petri dishes again following sterile conditions making sure that there was no contamination from anywhere from the air or from the tools that he used to inoculate the petri dishes with um, the broth that he was leaving in his experiment. Make sure that with this extra information that I've just given you and with the information that you will read from your book, you understand the evidence for the cell theory through Pasteur's work. There are some types of cells and organisms that certainly present a different image of a cell than usually thought of when discussing the cell theory. Examples are plasmodial slime molds of the phylum Myxomycota. They are composed of eukaryotic cells and are found in forests as a single large cell formed when many individual motile cells fuse. These cells have many nuclei and may increase in size to several centimeters. They are even capable of slow but coordinated movement. Other multinucleated cells are those of striated mussels, fungal hyphae, and several types of giant algae. Very large cells with continuous cytoplasms that are not compartmentalized into separate smaller cells are also exceptional viruses. Viruses are able to replicate, however, they do not have a cellular structure. So are they living or non-living? Where do they fit in the cell theory? And we mustn't forget the problem of explaining the first cells without spontaneous generation. The endosymbiotic theory currently explains how a cell could progress from a simple non-compartmentalized prokaryote to a complex, highly compartmentalized eukaryote. This theory was presented in 1981. Key points include, about two billion years ago, a bacterial cell took up residence inside an eukaryotic cell. The eukaryotic cell acted as a predator bringing the bacterial cell inside. The eukaryotic cell and the bacterial cell formed a symbiotic relationship in which both organisms lived in contact with one another. The bacterial cell then went through a series of changes to ultimately become a mitochondrion. In this process, the eukaryote helped the bacteria by providing protection and carbon compounds. How do you think that the eukaryote engulfed the bacterial cell if it was a predator what is the name of the process the bacteria after a series of changes became specialized in providing the eukaryote with ATP 
The bacteria, having been an independent organism, was able to carry out respiration. What change do you think came about by that process of engulfing the bacterium cell by the eukaryote predator, in quotes? Now, there is a lot of evidence to support this theory. If you look at mitochondria and also chloroplasts, they are about the size of most bacterial cells. So when you put a bacteria next to a chloroplast or a mitochondria, they are more or less the same size. The mitochondria divide by fission, as do most bacterial cells. Remember in fission, the nucleic acid goes to the sides of the cell, there is an elongation of the cell, and then there is a, a, a compartmentalization. And one long cell becomes two smaller cells, and then they increase in size. The mitochondria and the chloroplasts divide independently of the host cell. They have their own ribosomes, which allows them to produce their own proteins. They are smaller ribosomes. They are 70S ribosomes. Remember that the S stands for the unit of centrifugation speed that has to do with the size of the ribosomes. Mitochondria and chloroplasts have their own DNA, which more closely resemble the DNA of eukaryotic cells than of eukaryotic cells. And mitochondria and chloroplasts have two membranes on their exterior which is consistent with the engulfing process. On pages 39 and 40 of your book, there are a couple of examples of symbiotic relationships, one involving a, pro a protist and one involving a slug. They ingest photosynthetic organisms, in both cases is algae, and they become sedentary and photosynthetic themselves. There is an important final bit of evidence for the endosymbiotic theory, and it is that the 64 codons in the genetic code, that means triplets of bases, they have the same meanings in nearly all organisms. When we study DNA in, in the genetic code in more detail, you will learn how the 20 amino acids found in proteins are coded by the combination of four nitrogenous bases in triplets. Now, these codons have the same meaning in all organisms. The genetic code is thus called universal. There are some minor variations that are likely to have accrued since the common origin of life on Earth. With all the information presented so far, let's think about two approaches to any explanation about life processes. So life is an emergent process and biology is concerned not only with life but also anything that affects life. 
When studying organisms, it is possible to take one approach referred to as reductionism that reduces the complex phenomena of organisms to the interaction of their parts. Essentially, this viewpoint says it is the sum of the parts that make up the complex system, the organism. Another approach is that of holism, or of looking at systems. This approach has the central belief that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Discuss how both approaches have allowed the accumulation of the body of knowledge we now possess in biology. Attempt to utilize both approaches to explain the functions of life as demonstrated by a single cell. Mm -hmm.